Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another week of news topics. Before I get into what I want to discuss today, though, I did want to bring up the fact that I have chosen the book for the month of June for the Angry Feminist Book Club, and I am very excited to announce that it is the book Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson. I just started reading it. I'm not super far into it yet, but it isn't a very long book. Let me see. I think it's only got like... Yeah, it's like a little bit over 180 pages, so it's not super, super long, and I figured that we would get going on those episodes while I wait to do the interview with India. We will be talking to each other probably June 2nd or 3rd, so the episode will be up shortly after that, but in the meantime, I do want to get going on the book for the month of June, and I'm very excited to cover this book because it is going to discuss topics, as far as I'm aware, of both growing up and exploring your sexuality and your sexual identity, but growing up, figuring all of that out while you are under the rule of a very strictly religious household. And it seems like in this book in particular, a very strictly religious mother And I read that it has a little bit to do with, you know, like conversion therapy and things like that. So it really piqued my interest and I'm really excited to learn more about the book and read about it and share everything with you all. If there's any books that you want me to cover in the future, I would really, really love to be giving you all the things that you want and not just having me pick out all of the books. So if you do have any recommendations, please shoot me a DM, email me, I'll give you all that information at the end if you don't already know it. But yeah, I would really, really love your input on different, you know, books that I could cover because I definitely have, you know, my own types of books that I tend to veer more toward, but I'm more than willing to open up and broaden my literature world more and more and would really love to hear all of your amazing recommendations. Besides that, just a reminder that there are now two episodes available covering India's book, Still Learning. I'm very, very proud of these episodes. The second one in particular, oh my gosh, it took me so long. Like, I think I worked on that episode alone for over 20 hours. It was a big endeavor, but it was definitely worth it. Very proud of myself for getting through it. <laughs> um, so if you want to check all of that out, just go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist, and you can join the angry feminist book club for $5. If you want to get some extra content and get these episodes at 
free. You can also join the $8 level, which is called the Feminist Faves level. And yeah, I would really, really appreciate it. It's such an amazing way for you to both get some more content and to support the show and support me so that I can financially continue to go on this endeavor and things like that. So I really, really appreciate everybody's support through Patreon and beyond. So thank you very much. All right, let's get into today's news topics. So I'm doing it a little bit differently this week. Rather than setting up three individual topics to discuss, I have one broader topic of something that has been discussed a lot throughout, I would say, definitely the last year, two years or so on this show. But I really want to go into it a little bit more deeply. But then also, I did want to still touch on an event that happened this week as well. So this week, I posted a picture on Instagram of a restaurant sign that read, live so that if your life was a book, Florida would ban it. And I was amazed at the amount of comments from trolls from the right claiming that the books that are being banned are quote-unquote pornography. They argued that most of the books discussed are banned district to district and not on a state level. This week, a Florida school district banned Amanda Gorman's beautiful poem, which was turned into a book, The Hill We Climb, which she read for President Biden's inauguration. So I wanted to visit book bans again, in Florida specifically, and take a closer look at what's going on. Let's begin with Amanda Gorman. Her poem was removed for reading by elementary school children in an educational institution in Miami-Dade County. The 25-year-old poet said in a response that she was gutted to learn of this. The poem's removal was the result of a single parent complaint, and it was one of five books challenged by this parent. The reason that a complaint from one person could have this kind of reaction is because earlier this month, Ron DeSantis created legislation that requires schools to remove books immediately based on a complaint from a single parent. In the complaint, the parent mistakenly named the author of The Hill We Climb, as Oprah Winfrey. That in and of itself seems really fucking racist and icky. The parent said she objected to the book because it was not educational and have indirectly hate messages. Seems like they need to pop into their kids' grammar lessons too. Maybe that's why they're so against books. Gorman says, so they ban my book from young readers, confuse me with Oprah, fail to specify which parts of my poetry they object to, refuse to read any reviews, and offer no alternatives. Unnecessary book bans like these are on the rise, and we must fight back. Robbing children of the chance to find their voices in literature is a violation of their right to free thought and free speech. She will be joining the publishing company who released her book, Penguin Random House, to issue a lawsuit challenging book restrictions in Florida. She is also working with the group Pen America, a writer's group which, according to their website, stands at the intersection of literature and human rights to protect open expression in the United States and worldwide. According to Pen America, 565 books were banned in Florida schools for the 2021-2022 school year. I went to DeSantis' official website where he allegedly debunks the myths that the woke left is spreading about book bans. In one section, they list four LGBTQ books that have been banned in Florida schools for the reason that they allegedly contain explicit or pornographic content. The first one I want to talk about is This Book is Gay, which is actually one that I've been meaning to read. The book was written by UK-based author Juno Dawson. Juno is just such a, like, British name. I love it so much, and I wish there were more Americans named Juno. Oh, so cute. 
Juno spent seven years working as a sexual education and wellness teacher, and in 2012, she was approached by a publisher to create a comprehensive guide to LGBTQ plus sex education. She was initially unsure about the project. Juno told Rolling Stone, To reach out to all the LGBTQ plus youth in the world felt like a huge undertaking. Other than the fact that I had been a teacher, I didn't feel that I was the best authority to be telling anybody how to find a partner at that time, when I was in my 20s, given that my love life was such a hot mess. But when I was a teenager, this would have answered so many questions, and I knew there was nothing like it, so I said yes. After its publication in 2014, the book has since become a staple for sex education classes. However, since 2022, this book is gay became the ninth most banned book in America. So why is this book and books like it important? Just because gay history isn't taught doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The less access LGBTQ plus youth has to information, the more likely they are to end up in scary or precarious situations. Juno grew up in the 90s, cobbling together information via gossip, the news, and what little was available on the brand new thing called the internet. But she had no one to talk to, no book to read that could help keep them safe. The 90s was also in the shadow of the AIDS epidemic as well, and gay panic was still high, and information about STDs and safe sex was very, very minimal, especially for the LGBTQ community. Juno didn't want the next generation to have to go through the trial and error that she did. She said, I wished there was a way that young queer people could go out into adulthood armed with better knowledge and ways of being smart about sex and dating. Dorothy just jumped into my lap. Um... If she starts to make any noise, I'll move her, but her birthday was yesterday, so I'm going to give her a little extra love and let her sit in on the recording for a little bit. Stop licking me, though. When asked about the conservative narrative of her book being pornographic and sexually explicit, she says, I would challenge anyone to be titillated or aroused by what is essentially a textbook. What I would say, however, is that it's thorough. We teach young people who are 11, 12, and 13 years old how babies are made. We teach them about sexual intercourse, contraception, and sexually transmitted infections. And that's great, and we should be doing that. But I also think the LGBTQ plus people should be taught about sexual relationships. This book is gay is also not for children and is kept in the young adult section. Another book that has created quite a stir is Let's Talk About It, a graphic novel teaching sex ed. This book contains answers to questions like, how do I masturbate? What is consent? And how do I have sex? According to the letter from the authors at the end of the book, Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan, they set out with the goal of producing a book that they wish they had had when they were teens. Now, I can understand how a lot of these topics are uncomfortable for parents to think about their children reading about or even partaking in, but the fact is, it's normal, and in my opinion, I think we should be arming kids with information that helps them keep away any shame or discomfort they have around their bodies and sex. I mean, look at me. I had no idea that masturbation for women was even a thing until I was in my 20s. I didn't really even think orgasms were a thing for women. I knew nothing of consent, and I knew nothing of sex outside of a heterosexual relationship. Had I been better equipped, what different choices would I have made in life regarding sex? Now, some of these books are graphic, but I think it's a great idea for schools and libraries to have special sections for kids to see these types of books if they're interested. I had the idea of maybe having to ask the school librarian for the book specifically, but then we would have to make sure that there's no librarian that would be gatekeeping these books either. I'm just so distrusting and I don't know how to fix it. 
Another point of contention is that Florida schools are removing many books regarding the topic of race and Black history. According to DeSantis's website, though, the governor has signed legislation that ensures that Florida students learn about the 1920 Ocoee Election Day riots in addition to requiring instruction on slavery, the Civil War, and Jim Crow laws. Additionally, the, the following is required instruction of the History of African Americans in Florida Statute. The History of African Peoples Before the Political Conflicts that Led to the Development of Slavery— the Passage to America, the Enslavement Experience, Abolition, and the History and Contributions of Americans of the African Diaspora to Society. HB 7, signed in 2022, further expanded instruction of African-American history to develop students' understanding of the ramifications of prejudice and racism. From someone on the African-American History Task Force investigating the situation, they say, The idea that every Florida school student learns African-American history, it's not reality. Some districts don't even realize it's required instruction. Only 11 of the state's 67 school districts meet all of the benchmarks for teaching Black history set by the task force. Many schools only cover the topic during Black History Month. The state of Florida had to be dragged to desegregate all of its schools well into the 1970s, But the move to require African-American history in Florida classrooms in 1994 was brought in unceremoniously. Strangely, few newspapers even covered that the then-Democratic Governor Lawton Chilis even signed the new bill into law. It was after this bill was passed that the African-American History Task Force was created to help school districts with this new directive come up with strategy to implement the new teachings into classrooms. However, neither the law nor the Florida Department of Education set a deadline for districts to comply. Former state representative and black lawmaker in Florida, Representative Rudolph Bradley, says that the major flaw in accomplishing what the law set out to achieve was that lawmakers didn't set aside any money for school districts to update their textbooks, buy new instructional materials, or to train teachers. Bradley states that it was his mistake, being a freshman lawmaker, that he didn't understand the importance of attaching appropriations. Uh, what? I looked it up, and Bradley wasn't a lawyer or anything before this. He was a social worker. But I feel like social workers are also usually pretty familiar with laws regarding children and such, so I feel like you'd know that you need money to get anything done. My God. In an article from CNN, they explained that one of the first school districts in Florida to implement this new subject was Pinellas County, where in 1994, a young Ronnie DeSantis was entering his sophomore year in high school. He went to Denedon High School, which was mostly white and within walking distance of Florida's Gulf Shores, and he was part of a new wave of students to be exposed to this more complete story of Black history. Before this time, the school offered Black history as an elective, The district tasked the teacher of this class, Randy Lightfoot, to guide Panea's schools into compliance with the new law. Lightfoot made a point to state that DeSantis was not a student of his African-American history class. No shit. Lightfoot and his team worked tirelessly to create a plan to incorporate Black history, culture, and figures into every grade level, naming the blueprint for their ideas African-American Connections. The state loved this plan so much that they used it as a model for adhering to their new law. The Florida Education Commissioner even liked it so much that he handed a copy to every school district in the state. Unlike Bradley, Lightfoot knew that the lack of funds would be the downfall to this new academic endeavor. In 1996, he struggled to get the school board to acquire textbooks that included the new lessons. 
And on top of that, the district cut his staff. This isn't surprising, though, as just 20 minutes south of the home of Ronnie DeSantis, riots broke out in St. Petersburg after police killed an unarmed Black teenager, Tyron Lewis, during a traffic stop in 1996. Meanwhile, rates for Black male students graduating high school in the county remained low, and there was word that the county school board broached the idea of curbing forced busing to desegregate the public schools. In 2019, the Florida Department of Education announced that it would require districts for the first time to report how they were teaching required subjects such as the Holocaust, Black history, Latinx heritage, women's history, civics, and more. Democrats and advocates contend the state has done little with this information. They also say the administration has not yet indicated how it will ensure schools are complying with the new state law signed by DeSantis that requires annual instruction of the 1920 Ocoee massacre, when dozens of Black Floridians were murdered in a horrific Election Day racial cleansing. Oh, it's terrible. Democrats would like to introduce legislation to require the state to enforce whether or not school districts are teaching Black history as the law intends, though supporters acknowledge that any bill is likely to fail in the state house run by Republicans. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. So wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Back to the banning of books, I'd like to read to you straight from PEN America's website, putting facts to what Republicans say are the myths of book bans. DeSantis's claim. Books are being removed from Florida classrooms and libraries because they are pornographic, violent, or inappropriate. Fact. Books that have been banned in Florida include biographies of Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente that Duval County admitted to removing from shelves for nearly a year, along with 177 other books from a collection of diverse books. And Tango Makes Three, a picture book about two male penguins raising a chick. Stella Brings the Family, a picture book about a girl with two dads. When Wilma Rudolph Played Basketball, pulled from open shelves temporarily after one person complained about it. Forever by Judy Bloom. Judy Bloom? Booker Prize winner, The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. Nobel Prize winner, Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. And dozens of books that include LGBTQ plus themes, protagonists of color, or that touch on race or racism. DeSantis claim. The most books banned in any district in Florida in 2023 is 19 books in Duval and St. John's counties. The total across the state is 175 books removed. Fact. In 2023, to comply with new laws, some Florida schools were directed to empty libraries and cover classroom bookshelves. Teacher in Manatee County and Duval County were told that they had to have each book in their classroom reviewed before they could go back on the shelves. Martin County removed dozens of books after they were objected by one person. In 2021-2022 school year, PEN America documented 565 books banned in Florida schools, like I said. Some were banned permanently, others temporarily pending investigations. But the result is the same. Students can't access books. DeSantis claim. Florida has expanded African-American history with HB7. HB7, known as Stop Woke Act and officially called the Individual Freedom Act, is an educational gag order. Among other things, it prevents teachers from discussing advantages or disadvantages based on race. Discussion of systemic racism is considered critical race theory and are not allowed. Nadine Farid Johnson, Managing Director of PEN America, Washington, and Free Expressions Program, says the bill's provisions affect the state's students, educators, and administrators from kindergarten through college, curtailing their freedom to teach, explain, discuss, or access information on a wide range of topics, rights enshrined by the First Amendment. And one more, DeSantis claim, Florida has taken a stand against sexual material and pornography in the classroom. Fact. No one is advocating for pornography in schools. Florida laws signed by DeSantis, however, are so broad they could sweep up a wide swath of books, including classics like Romeo and Juliet and To Kill a Mockingbird. Coupled with a recent directive to err on the side of caution, some schools are doing just that, with a disastrous result for the freedom to read. I just don't understand that... You know, the teachers and the people that are running our country right now were raised by the people that fought the Nazis. <laughs> Yet these people all think that we are doing good things. There are World War II veterans alive right now who fought the Nazis and because of that say that, you know, we are the greatest country in the world or whatever, who are still wanting to ban these books. Did we learn 
nothing from our past? Do we have we learned nothing from other countries and cultures' mistakes? Banning books and banning information does not mean that these things do not exist. It just means that we are hurting minorities and other people by not educating broader America about different ways of living. And what is the harm in that? And the other thing, I think that, you know, as a parent, if there are certain things that you don't think your child is ready for or shouldn't be reading, that's your responsibility. I do not believe in this Republican rhetoric that teachers are groomers and that they're purposefully feeding children this certain information to turn them gay or radical or woke or whatever. It just doesn't happen like that. It's very upsetting to me because I always just kind of have to sit back and kind of think, well, what can I do? (laughs) I'm one person. I don't know how to change all of this. So I guess this is my one small way of trying to do that. If you are a parent who wants to educate your child in a more progressive and loving and honest and truthful way, I highly recommend looking up the books that have been banned and educating your children specifically on those books about the topics and why they're being banned in certain areas. I know these conversations are difficult, especially regarding sex, but it's so important. I really wish that I'd had a better understanding of my body. I wish that I had had a better understanding about my privilege in this world. And I think that by all people learning about these things, we are able to love each other more empathetically and fully and can hopefully create a better world. All right, so the one recent news topic that I really did want to cover is the passing of the beloved icon, Tina Turner, with a hit list that includes Proud Mary, River Deep Mountain High, The Best, and What's Love Got to Do With It. Tina Turner, the queen of rock and roll, passed away this week at the age of 83. She had battled a long illness and died peacefully in her home in Kuchnat near Zurich, Switzerland, where she had been living for the past three decades or so. I'll get into her life in Switzerland a little bit more later. Known for her many, many number one songs and numerous accolades, Tina was also known for her particularly abusive relationship to Ike Turner. Tina was very open about her experience with domestic violence with her former husband, describing bruised eyes, busted lips, a broken jaw, and many other injuries that sent her to the emergency room. In Ike's autobiography, Taken Back My Name, (laughs) Ike said, Sure, I've slapped Tina. We had fights, and there have been times when I punched her to the ground without thinking, but I never beat her. Sir, what is your definition of beat, then? They married in 1962, and the two were divorced in March of 1978. I can't imagine what the 16 years of marriage with that man was like. When Tina began to publicly speak about the mistreatment she suffered by the hands of Ike in 1981, It was an incredible act of bravery. She told People Magazine that year, I was insanely afraid of that man. In Tina's account of the abuse, Ike had done much, much worse than punch or slap her. He would brutalize and torture her. It is disgusting, the things that she described. He groomed her and abused her. From the People interview, I felt obligated to stay there, and I was afraid. I didn't want to hurt him, and after he beat me up, I was sitting there, all bruised and torn, and all of a sudden, I'm feeling sorry for him. Maybe I was brainwashed. Whew, that one hit me hard. 
She said, I was living a life of death. I didn't exist, but I survived it. And when I walked out, I walked and I didn't look back. She told a documentary filmmaker in 2021 that she was so nervous to do that interview back in 81 that she went to a psychic and asked if it would ruin her career. Tina said the psychic told her, no, Tina, it's going to do the opposite. It's going to break everything wide open. Fuck, that is powerful. According to Lenore E. Waller, director of the Domestic Violence Institute in the United States, in 1981, we were just learning about the extent of domestic violence in homes. It was often thought to be only poor women without resources who were abused. When Tina Turner spoke about her life, it brought awareness to the fact that domestic violence is everywhere. Women were not believed when they spoke about domestic violence. So when Tina Turner, a well-respected and famous singer, spoke out, it gave other women the courage to do so also. As for her life in Switzerland, Tina had spent three decades there, and locals described her as a popular neighbor who appreciated the lack of fuss from fellow residents when walking around. She moved there in 1995 and gave up her U.S. citizenship to become a Swiss national in 2013. Her death comes after years of suffering from multiple health conditions, including intestinal cancer, stroke, and kidney failure. Though she may be gone, she lives on in her song. Thank you, Tina. You were simply the best. All right. All right. Well, that is everything that I have for all of you lovely listeners today. If there's anything that you would love for me to cover in the future, please go ahead and send me a DM on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist or email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. Don't forget to check me out on Patreon. And remember that another way that you can support me is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or rating the show on Spotify. I truly do appreciate it so, so much. All right, that is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.